Hi, I'm Carmen LeBurge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge. Your daily encouragement that God has the world in the hollow of his hand. This is Mornings with Carmen LeBurge on Faith Radio. If we're going to It is Monday, the 24th of October, 2022. I'm Carmen LaBurge. Welcome to Mornings with Carmen here on the Faith Radio Network. So glad to be spending this time um, with you today. Thank you so much for the honor, um, just the honor of this shared time. So today's Growing Your Faith verse of the day is Matthew 7, verses 3 to 5. Just a reminder here, we're working our way through the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapters 5 through 7. We've covered the Beatitudes in chapter 5. Um, you know, this like completely countercultural call of Christ, uh, just completely contrary to um, the, the way the world thinks about things. Jesus shares with us the logic of his kingdom. And then in Matthew 6, he calls us to this higher righteousness, what it looks like to actually follow Jesus. And that theme continues here in chapter 7, where we arrive at today's Growing Your Faith verse of the day. Why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye? but do not notice the log in your own eye. How can you say to your brother, hey, let me take that speck out of your eye. And look, there's a log in your own eye. Hypocrite. First, take the log out of your eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So as we consider this teaching of Jesus, um, which is obviously about hypocrisy, um, let me just invite you to consider for a moment how you respond when you have something in your eye. (laughs) <laughs> can you do anything else? Like when there's something in your eye, like, right, you're, you're trying to blow the leaves off the yard and some of that dust flies up and it, it gets in your eyes. I mean, you can't really just continue blowing the leaves, can you? I mean, if you're mowing the yard and, you know, again, some dust flies up and some little speck of something gets in your eye. I mean, you don't just keep mowing, right? I mean, you stop and you deal with the speck in your eye. Or how about the vapor that's released from an onion? When you're cutting it up, you know, to start that latest tasty creation in your kitchen. I mean, you don't just keep chopping. You stop and you you deal with um, the the sting, the burn of what is in your eye. I mean, maybe it was an eyelash. I mean, you try to blink it out. Maybe it was a bug. I mean, like, right. You stop. You don't stop, drop and roll like you do in case of a fire. But you do stop and you You resist rubbing because we know that's the wrong thing to do. We blink, 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 and we head to the bathroom or the kitchen sink and we try to, you know, flush it out with some water. I mean, when you get something in your eye, everything else stops. When our when your eye is irritated by something that stings or burns, I mean, you literally cannot focus on anything else. Something in our eye requires, demands our immediate and full attention. You can't ignore the speck in your eye, because it feels, frankly, like a log. And yet Jesus says, a lot of us are doing exactly that. That's exactly what we're doing. We're ignoring the log in our own eye, and we're focusing on the faults and failures of others. So I'm celebrating today that that God designed our bodies to recognize the immediate threat of something foreign in our eye. Like, that is such a gift, right? (laughs) That I can feel it immediately when there's something in my eye. 
And I'm thankful that God designed our bodies to naturally produce tears that flush out the foreign objects. I mean, that's really cool. But sometimes we need additional help. I mean, I got something in my eye. I've tried to flush it out. Can you help me? Do you see something? This is where um, the members of the body of Christ come alongside to help one another. When we, you know, when we ask for it, when there's something that we know is a fault, a failure, um, a persistent sin, and we need some help, that's different. That's different than going around pointing out the faults and failures of others um, when we are not uh, paying attention to um, our own. All right, so confess your own faults before you turn to the faults and failures of others. That is, uh, that's the, the gist of today's Growing Your Faith verse of the day. Um, next up, uh, Andy Hawkins is going to join us. I mean, we could just talk to Andy about um, uh, what it's been like to be Matthew's dad, because we love Matthew Hawkins, and he's our good friend here on the show. Um, but we're going to talk with Andy about the church that he pastors in Shell Point, Florida, what happened not only to his physical facility, but what's going on with his congregation. Um, Andy Hawkins from Florida joins us next with a post-Hurricane Ian update. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Point is a beautiful retirement community, um, some 700 acres. It includes beautiful neighborhoods and a really wide variety of, um, of homes. It's got all kinds of wonderful amenities, including, including the Village Church at Shell Point. And joining us now, Andy Hawkins, who is the pastor of the Village Church on Shell Point. Um, Andy, welcome to Mornings with Carmen. Thank you, Carmen. It's great to be here. I actually probably would rather talk about uh, my son but rather than this, but uh, we'll we'll go with what you have, or your or, or, or your sweet grandchild. Of course, Maggie Joe, absolutely. There you go, there you go. Um, all right. So on September the twenty eighth, uh, Ian made landfall, and when I say landfall, I mean describe Shell Point because I'm not even really sure that historically we would call Shell Point quote unquote land. It's like an island off an island off an island. Well, yeah, it's not quite an island, but it's close to it. Uh, it uh, is bordered by the Caloosahatchee River, which goes into the uh, Pine Island Sound, which is the major body of water that is separating the Gulf of Mexico uh, by, the, by the barrier islands like Sanibel and Captiva. And then on the other side of it is the Gulf of Mexico. And so it's sort of surrounded by, by water. And so uh, you would think quite vulnerable to storms. So talk about um, the vulnerability of um, of this place, but then also, you know, I think maybe give us some assurance of maybe how few people were actually in Shell Point at the time of Hurricane Ian. Well, there it, it was actually a lot of people were in Shell Point at the time of Hurricane Ian because uh, Shell Point is the largest uh, continuous care retirement community in the state of Florida. And so there are both all independent living, assisted living, and skilled nursing. A major uh, building was just completed last year uh, for skilled nursing, $70 million unit, which was designed to uh, uh, sustain hurricanes. And uh, we sheltered 2,000 of our 2,500 residents in two shelters uh, in the Shell Point community. 
Um, we put independent living people in a second floor of a parking garage, which was designed uh, as a hurricane shelter. And then uh, all the assisted living and skilled nursing patients went into the new skilled nursing building, which was also designed to be hurricane resistant. So we sheltered those folks during the, during the hurricane. A lot of people did leave and go north and go someplace else. They were certainly encouraged to do so. But uh, out of about 2,500 residents, uh, we had uh, about 2,000 we sheltered, and we had uh, probably about uh, six or 700 employees that served them. Wow. And so were you there? I mean, were you there throughout the uh, storm? Yes. Yes. My wife and I both sheltered in the skilled nursing facility, and my other associate pastor and his wife were in with the, uh, the independent living patients in the parking garage. And so we, uh, and then of course we have a chaplaincy ministry and the chaplains were supporting, uh, those, uh, those places as well. Uh, but yeah, we put a lot of people up, uh, for several days. It was quite a monumental task. Um, all right. Talk with us about, uh, about the experience. Um, because, you know, frankly, you're the first person that we've talked to who didn't evacuate in, at least in some way or who wasn't already far enough inland that, you know, they rode out the storm, but it, you know, right. but it, it it certainly wasn't like it was where you were. So talk with us about um, that experience. Well, well, we, you know, my wife and I did, we were in an evacuation area in our own home. And so we sort of left our home and then sheltered with the people at Shell Point. Um, but uh, we had a ringside seat to a devastating hur- uh, a hurricane. I've never seen anything like it. And we rode out uh, Irma uh, five years ago, and uh, that was nothing like this uh, because uh, Ian was a high Category 4 when it uh, made landfall in the Sanibel Captiva area and uh, nearly a hurricane or Category 5 with major storm surge right about high tide. So it was devastating in the surrounding area. Um, and uh, it was quite remarkable to watch uh, waves coming across the parking lots uh, where, where a lot of the cars were parked from our staff who were trying to attend to the, uh, uh, to the residents. Uh, so it, it was, uh, I've never seen anything quite like it, and I don't think anybody else, uh, even, even our nonagenarians, our 90-year-olds, had never seen anything uh, like what they experienced during uh, this hurricane. So we're talking with Andy Hawkins. He's the pastor of the Village Church at Shell Point. We want to direct you to the church's website, villagechurchshellpoint.org. You can also connect with them on Facebook. We're going to continue our conversation with Andy about what, you know, what it's like now almost a month later. Um, we recognize that the Sanibel Causeway has reopened, but there's lots of folks, um, you know, still still sorting through and sifting through um, the remains of their life. A lot of folks still like looking for their pets and layoffs are beginning um, in some locations across Southwest Florida. So all of those conversations up next with Pastor Andy Hawkins. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LeBurge and this is Faith Radio. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen. As you know, this is a rebroadcast of the live radio show carried on the Faith Radio Network. There's a lot going on at Faith Radio. Tons of free resources just waiting for you and for you to share with others at MyFaithRadio.com. How does that all happen? Well, it happens through listener support. So Faith Radio, Mornings with Carmen, all available because of listener support from listeners, well, just like you. If you're a supporter, thank you so very much. If you'd like to become a supporter today, just visit MyFaithRadio.com. And again, thanks for being a part of what we do every day at Mornings with Carmen. In the eye of the storm, you remain in control. In 
All right, we're talking with Andy Hawkins. He's the pastor of the Village Church at Shell Point. You can um, you can find Andy and connect with the church, villagechurchshellpoint.org. He also, um, you know, is famous here because he is Matthew Hawkins' dad, and Matthew's one of our faves. So, um, Andy, talk with us about uh, the recovery process, where you are now, uh, maybe, maybe the things that people are experiencing or you're encountering that— um, you know, I think would be really informative of, to folks across the country. Yeah. Well, first of all, it's that's a complicated topic. I, don't, I could probably talk for a long time, but let me sort of try to summarize it this way. Uh, first of all, uh, we really believe the Lord uh, spared us remarkably uh, mm. through the servants that we have had. The staff and the leadership of Shell Point as, as a community is uh, just astonishing. Uh, the self-sacrificial and monumental effort they made to uh, keep everyone safe. No one was injured or harmed. And that's quite a remarkable transfer of people, many of whom are infirm, uh, from one place to another, keep them safe during a storm, try to get them back to their uh, apartments or units uh, as effectively as possible. Uh, we were without power a good bit of the most of the first week. Uh, so that was a difficult circumstance as well. Uh, first floor units uh, were affected by the storm surge, and so there are probably about 250 units on Shell Point's campus that have displaced people. They've had to house them in various other places uh, while renovations take place, and so they're completely tearing out the uh, wallboard and floors and appliances and all those kinds of things in those first floor units. So there's a lot of uh, a lot of displacement and transition for for a good number of uh, of our residents. And then the cleanup in general of, uh, of, of trees and uh, all those kinds of things that you might expect. But by and large, we are very grateful as a community. Uh, amazingly, the church, which is located uh, probably in the most vulnerable section of Shell Point on what we call the island, um, was, uh, was affected on the exterior, but amazingly, no water incursion took place. And that's wow. amazing. We were just about... Uh, uh, 50, 50 yards away from the uh, from the parking garage, which took four feet of water in its lower section. And uh, looking at the geography, I don't understand how it didn't come into the church building, and it didn't. And so we were quite uh, remarkably spared. And uh, so that was that was great. Um, the surrounding area, however, is devastated. Uh, there are are outside of Shell Point. There are a number of of uh, 55 and older communities, uh, some manufactured home and mobile home park kinds of communities uh, that were just devastated. And uh, it, to, to go around and see what's happening is heartbreaking. Mm -hmm. the, you know, there are people who have lost everything. And then, of course, our friends on Sanibel Island were devastated as well, couldn't even get back to their places until, uh, until they could get on a barge or something for a while. Uh, so my uh, pastor friend uh, from the Sanibel Community Church, for instance, while they have buildings intact, nevertheless, a lot of damage, but he himself lost his own home. And mm. uh, and so uh, Jeremy Wren is his, his name. And you might have, for those of you who follow the Gospel Coalition, he wrote a letter to his congregation that uh, quite, uh, I think, poignantly captures the essence of what it's like to go through a time like that. Yeah, so, uh, so, Andy, we, I've never we seen had... Anything like this thing it's amazing yeah we had jeremy scheduled to be on um the morning um on a, on a particular morning uh, here on the show and 
um, he texted us at like four that morning and said, today's the day they're going to let us get on the barge at, at daybreak and go see, you know, and go see. And right. so um, we did not get to talk with him personally um, that day, but we're looking forward to connecting with him. And, um, and I, you know, I, yeah. So let me just ask you, you know, right. Pastor mm-hmm. to pastor, what yeah. do we say to a pastor who's now going to shepherd a flock um, when the pastor himself has lost his own home? I mean, I know that they are, um, you know, they're worshiping at a, you know, at a sister church um, and they're gathering and they're loving on each other. But, you know, when the, when the shepherd is, is also hurting and struggling, you know, there's uh, at, at one level, right. That makes us um, more attuned to what our people are going through, but on another level, yeah. it makes it really hard to serve. Right. Well, all, all of us have, uh, you know, a great deal of need within our own fellowships. And certainly we've reached out to Jeremy. Uh, there's a, a, a significant number of his congregation. I can't say a significant, I don't know how many, but there, there are a number of his congregation that live in the Shell Point community. Mm. And so for, and so we've uh, certainly are providing opportunities for them, and they do a number of them worship with us now uh, just temporarily um, because uh, they're, it's handy, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's convenient, that kind of thing. And we've reached out to them, and certainly our facilities are open to them as well. Um, as if they if they would choose to uh, to join us in one capacity or another, um, and uh, but certainly we we pray for them, we care about them. Uh, we also have our own people, obviously, that are displaced. We're trying to keep track of those that uh, are uh, away and have lost things here, and, uh, and it's just a it's a devastating kind of impact that people have. And then the then the things that are around us, um, we have uh, members of our congregation that don't live in Shell Point. Uh, probably about 15 to 20 percent of our congregation live in the surrounding communities, and many of them, most of them, have been displaced. And uh, so, so it's it's uh, it's really tough to sort of uh, make sure that we care for our own flock uh, as much as we possibly can as well. So we did talk. Um, I think it was last week. It might have been the week before with Doug Pratt from um, the mm. Bonita Springs uh, Church, and they have yeah. members who you know don't live like don't live full time in the area, but have made you know their their homes or their their residences uh, available to others who have been displaced. Like I, I do think there's a tremendous community spirit that we're seeing. But what can those of us who live you know far away? What um, what would you in addition to prayer? right? What would you have us do? Well, there are a couple of uh, things. Obviously, prayer is, a, is an important part of it. Um, the communities surrounding Shell Point are really in great need, and I think uh, organizations like Samaritan's Purse are getting church groups to come down, and that's going to be very, very helpful. Uh, the fortunate part about Shell Point is because we have such a large employee. We have more than a 1,000 employees um, and contractors that work for us uh, that, that are doing a great job of putting things back together. Uh, so that's, uh, I think, we're set, they're covered that, that way. But we also have employees who have had needs. Uh, so, for instance, um, you know, probably 50 of the employees who served the Shell Point residents lost their own homes, and many, many more lost their vehicles. And mm-hmm. so there are su- substantial needs on the, of the people who really serve our community uh, that are desperate. And Shell Point has set up a couple of funds to help support them. Uh, and so the other website that might be useful is shellpoint.org. And there are, there are a couple of uh, relief funds that are available, particularly the one for employees uh, is very, very helpful because uh, those, those folks 
have uh, sacrificially served uh, this community uh, during this storm, some of them spending an entire week here, even though their own homes were flooded. And, uh, and so, so basically, uh, they have a, have a great deal of need, and Shell Point is working to, to support them. And the church has a fund as well, uh, also. And so if you go to the church's website, there's an employee benevolence fund that can provide uh, support for that uh, also. And uh, so that would be under our website uh, slash giving, and you could find that link. All right. So the church's website is villagechurchshellpoint.org. Shell Point's mm-hmm. website is shellpoint.org. If you click on shellpoint.org, you're going to see the very first thing that comes up is a community update mm-hmm. and then the Employee Hurricane Relief Fund. Um, so that would be a, you know, a way to give directly if that's something that you're interested in doing um, today or in the days and weeks yes. going forward. Andy, um, can we pray for you as we bring this conversation oh, to a conclusion today? I would, I would love that. Thank you. Yeah. Father, um, thank you for Andy. Thank you for the, um, the rest of the staff of this congregation and this community. We lift up to you the thousand employees and staff of Shell Point. We lift up um, the pastors and their wives of, um, of, the, of the Shell Point Church. And we ask, Father, that you would grant them just a, a flow of your grace today that you would send forth every spiritual and tangible resource that's necessary for the accomplishing of your will in and through their lives. Thank you um, for the good works you've prepared in advance for them to do today. And thank you for giving them the energy, the imagination, and the love to, um, to enter in day after day after day um, into these recovery efforts, even as life, um, life goes on and the challenges of life go on as well um, for, for them and for the members of this community and, and, and Father, I would ask that you would um, continue to spur the rest of us on to love and good deeds in relationship to the recovery of our brothers and sisters in the state of Florida. In Jesus' name, we ask it. Amen. Amen. Andy, thank you. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. That's, uh, that's Andy Hawkins. You can connect with him at the Village Church at Shell Point. The website is villagechurchshellpoint.org. They've also got a page on Facebook. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LeBurge. This is Faith Radio. All right, if you've ever mucked out a house um, or if you've ever endured a flood, you know, I, I live in, uh, in Middle Tennessee, and in 2010, we endured a really uh, enormously catastrophic flood across the central portion um, of the state. And, um, you know, neighbors helped neighbors, and communities that were on a little bit higher ground went and served communities that were in lower-lying uh, parts. And wherever you live, you've probably had an opportunity to respond to a local devastating event um, could have been a wind event, could have been a tornado, could have been a hurricane, um, could have been a fire, could have been a flood, could have been an earthquake, on and on and on. Um, and there are opportunities for us to comfort others in the ways in which we've been comforted. And so um, maybe draw back on your own experience of the, the way that you needed help at some point or the way your family or your church or your community needed help at some point, and that will tenderize your heart to the needs of, um, you know, of our neighbors in, in Southwest Florida. And you say to yourself, those people live a long way from me. All right, well then find somebody closer by because there's probably somebody a lot closer to home who's dealing with a catastrophic loss as well. Um, 
And the church is in a position to respond. And who is the church? We are. We are the church. Um, Everybody's been talking about gas, right? You've been hearing that uh, President Biden is drawing down the nation's strategic oil reserve in an attempt to keep prices relatively low. Um, But maybe the greater crisis that nobody is talking about in relationship to fuel is that America is actually facing a diesel shortage. And you think about diesel um, and you think about trucks and tractors and uh, freight trains and generators and excavators and on and on and on and on and on. Um, Ships at sea, right? When you talk about diesel, you're talking about manufacturing, you're talking about delivery, um, you're talking about the way things move around. We have, uh, as of the 22nd of October, which was now a couple of days ago, uh, we only had 106 million barrels of diesel and heating oil in commercial stocks. That is desperately low for the the nation of America. The last time it was that low, mid-October, 1951. 1951. We normally have uh, at least a 30% higher inventory this time of year, which is why, if you've been wondering, as gas prices have been incrementally coming down, um, why diesel is still running 5.33 or 5.34 a gallon on average nationwide. Um, that is um, that is up from two dollars and seventy one cents a gallon when Joe Biden took office. So if you uh, if you wonder what the issues are facing most voters as we go to the polls um, in these midterm elections, um, pollsters are saying the three things of greatest concern to voters um, are. Let's see. Inflation, number one, economy and jobs, number two, immigration, number three. Um, however, the Democrats continue to assert that the top issues of concern to voters, voters are January 6th, abortion and climate change. How could we be entering into a midterms when one of the parties is so um, misaligned with the concerns of the American people? We're going to talk about the midterms next with Daniel Bennett from Uneasy Citizenship Blog. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LeBurge. This is Faith Radio. Daniel Bennett is back. You can find him at John Brown University. You can also find him at the Uneasy Citizenship blog. Just follow him on Twitter at Daniel R. Ben. That's with two N's because, you know, there's two N's in Bennett. Daniel, welcome back. Thanks, Carmen. Good morning. Good morning. So um, consumers across the country, which, you know, that means also voters across the country, you know, uh, leading their concerns, the price of food and consumer goods. So that means um, inflation, the price of gasoline and energy. So that means inflation, the cost of housing. So that means inflation, the limited availability of some consumer products, um, which is also related to inflation. And then the next ones um, are related to the economy and jobs, employees being unable to find workers to hire or how the stock market is doing. Um, and then rounding out the list, people who want to work being unable to find the kinds of jobs that they want. I mean, that's that's it. Those are the top seven concerns um, in terms of polling. And this is by Pew, but it's reflected in all kinds of other polling as well. Um, when you take the temperature of the midterms, it seems to me as if the things of concern to most people across the country are not necessarily the things that are being talked about um, by at least some people uh, running for office. Yeah, that's exactly right. I think there's, and this isn't unique, there, there is a disconnect between uh, people running for office uh, among Democrats, among certain Republicans, 
who are trying to appeal to a more, we'll say, online crowd, trying to make a video go viral or trying to get a lot of likes or retweets or shares or whatever you want to call it, um, trying to tap into these culture war issues, uh, which which resonate really well with certain elements of, of the online community. But again, I know you've talked about this very small percentage of the American people are extremely active on social media. I mean, everybody, everybody's on Facebook, but that that doesn't mean everybody's like really active on Facebook or Twitter is an even better example of this. And so there is a disconnect oftentimes between what is popular with the online crowd and what's popular with the average person in your community. And this midterm election is shaping up to be really, really similar to past ones where the economy is going to dominate. I mean, how many issues have we seen over the past year that say, oh, this will be the issue that that by that sinks the Biden administration or that changes the midterms? It all comes back to the economy. It all comes back to how people are feeling about their pocketbooks, about their jobs, about the price of milk. And, you know, this this election more than really other recent ones, given inflation, is going to bring that back to the forefront. Yeah, the price of milk and eggs, like just just taking those two concerns. I mean, the only thing that yeah. seems persistently low is the price of bananas. Like, I, I, that's it. That's well. the only thing that, <laughs> that I can find that seems like you can still get a cheap banana. But that's about it. Can you, can you imagine someone who just loves bananas and like, hey, man, I am loving this yeah, situation I'm, right now. <laughs> <laughs> like, they're like, I'm good. Um, OK, good. let's talk about some interesting um, elections across the country. Um, I I will confess that. You know, even though I I think I pay pretty close attention to what's going on out there, I at least had not taken note of the fact that Dr. Oz, who is running for Senate in the state of Pennsylvania, um, is a really important um, seat. If he wins, it's going to be history making. I didn't realize he's a Muslim. I just didn't. Yeah, so Mehmet Oz, a uh, family with Turkish background, I believe his mother still lives in Turkey. And there was an issue with, you know, is he going to maintain his Turkish citizenship as a U.S. senator? And he argued, I think somewhat persuasively, like, well, I can go back and visit her if I keep my Turkish citizenship and she's getting older. And so, yeah, there, there is a Muslim ba- uh, background that he has. And as far as I know, he still somewhat practices. And uh, not only, you know, is that a history making thing just in the sense of being the first Muslim elected to the United States Senate. Uh, but also just shows the importance and I, th- I just think the real neat aspect of religious pluralism in the United States, where, you know, you have these types of uh, stories that come up of a minority religious tradition rising pretty high in the ranks of, of, of American politics. Um, it's probably not getting as much play, given the fact that he's he himself is really not emphasizing it, right? He's not leaning on the fact that this would be history-making in that respect. And there's a lot more to talk about in that race than, than his religious beliefs. Uh, but taking a step back and just thinking about the implications is pretty astonishing. Yeah, I it just I, I found it interesting, and I thought maybe other folks would find it interesting as well. Um, there's mm. another candidate for the U.S. Senate, again, in a, in a hotly contested state, mm. and this would be Georgia. Um, Raphael Warnock is a, I mean, he's a very interesting candidate. Yeah. He's a Democratic candidate. He's also a pastor. Um, mm. And the New Yorker ran this piece talking about mm. the political gospel of Raphael Warnock. This is a little bit different kind of um, of character than we have seen before. And he is persuasive in his preaching. Um, and mm. he brings that to bear uh, in terms of the political discourse. It's it's an interesting opportunity for us to consider, like, how far up the ladder will you go with a preacher, even if you disagree with what they're talking about because of the manner of their speech? Yeah, I mean, 
political scientists have measured, you know, rhetoric and the effectiveness of speech for quite some time. And not surprisingly, pastors and public speakers tend to do pretty well in in political life. They're used to speaking in front of big crowds. Someone like Warnock, too, and I'm a white evangelical, right? I'm not a black Protestant like he is. Uh, but there's a very specific manner of preaching that goes on in the black Protestant tradition where it's a lot of call and response almost. And so he knows how to, not disingenuously, but he knows how to work a crowd. He knows how to engage with with large groups of people. And I believe he's a pastor at Ebenezer Baptist Church, which is Dr. King's uh, church in, in Atlanta. Um, and so not only is that interesting, but it also highlights the real distinctions and, and uh in many ways, divisions between two prominent strands of Christianity in the United States, the black Protestant tradition and, say, white evangelicalism, uh, especially when it comes to politics, right? Af- uh, black Protestants make up a huge voting block for the Democratic Party, uh, just as white evangelicals make up a huge voting block for the Republican Party. A lot of white evangelicals criticize Warnock and the Democratic Party's support for abortion rights. Black Protestants still vote for abortion, and this comes up in discussions of, well, is, a bra- is black Protestant theology twisted or otherwise, you know, uh, missing, you know, direction. Um, I think the article does a really good job of saying, well, there's more to it than, than what we might be criticizing just, just, uh, you know, at face value here. So you're right. The speech, the speech matters, but also I think the policy is really interesting in the tradition of black Protestant uh, political leaders. He is an interesting character, and I think yeah. one to watch, um, not oh, yeah. just this year, but but into the future. Um, Cory Booker would be another one mm-hmm. that I put in this same um, same category in terms of a cultivated pattern of speech and and rhetoric that is sermonic when you hear them. Mm. You know, when you hear them talk and well, you hear them address a concern. Well, in his in his most famous. Uh, I would say the mo- one of the most famous speeches of his presidency, Barack Obama, was at the memorial service for the people slain at the church shooting in South Carolina, where he spoke for like 30 or 40 minutes to an audience largely of black Protestants. And he was right at home in that tradition. Mm-hmm. And this is someone who didn't grow up in the black Protestant church. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, so it, it's absolutely fascinating. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I just, it makes for interesting um, observation and discourse. Um, all right. Um, we want to, I want to talk with you about uh, a few things that you and I have both read. One of them is how religion became more conservative and society more secular. But let's uh, take a brief break and come back to that. So just ask yourself um, as you're, as you're musing for a moment, when you think about religious people in the United States of America, does it feel like religion has become more conservative over time or more radicalized and polarized, while society has become more and more and more or increasingly secular, which, you know, in a word is godless. Does it does it feel that way? We're going to talk about how that has happened. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LeBurge, and this is Faith Radio. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen. As you know, this is a rebroadcast of the live radio show featured on the Faith Radio Network. There is a lot going on at Faith Radio, tons of free resources just waiting for you and for you to share at MyFaithRadio.com. My guess is you spend a fair amount of time on social media. So where do you spend your time? Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube? Well, have you followed or liked Faith Radio on those platforms? I would invite you to do so. I'm there as well. If you want to check out uh, my personal pages, you could connect with me individually. We would love to have you 
uh, use the resources that we have produced and are creating and posting on social media for you to share with others. We got all kinds of stuff from graphics to, you know, Bible verses. I don't know. There's all kinds of stuff. Go check it out on your social media. Connect with us on Faith Radio social media. And, you know, let's get the word out to others. All right. Back to the show. Again, thanks for listening. Love connecting with you at MyFaithRadio.com. All right, what kind of Christian are you? What kind of church do you go to? What's the label out there on the sign? What does it mean? What variety of that kind are you? We're talking with Daniel Bennett, and in front of us is this conversation about how religion in America became more conservative while society became more secular. And it really is a look into the different, the two, I mean, we're going to talk in big, broad categories here, if there are going to be two kinds of Protestants in America. And we're going to put evangelicals in one group, and we're going to put mainline or liberal Protestants in the other group. And then we're going to look at those two. So, Daniel, take us into um, this conversation. It's a it's a book review as much as it is anything else, but I think it is um, a look at sort of how we got here as American Protestants. Yeah, and within Christianity in the United States, and we've already talked about the divisions between black Protestants and white evangelicals, uh, but in the white Christian tradition, like you said, there are real two major, we'll say, branches, right? You have the white evangelicals, which are the relatively new branch, and then the mainline Protestant tradition. These are the churches where if you go to a downtown area of a major city or even just a town, those churches in the downtown area uh, within, you know, the first few blocks of city center or whatever, those are likely to be mainline churches. These are Methodist churches, first uh, or uh, PCUSA churches, uh, old old guard Protestant traditions that have been there for a long time. And for most of American history, these Protestant traditions had power in communities. It wasn't until real, really the 20th century where we saw an uptick in evangelical organizations like uh, Billy Graham, for example, rose up, uh, Christianity Today, National Association of Evangelicals. And you started to see this, this more pronounced schism between these traditions. And, you know, social scientists have looked at as the numbers of folks who affiliate with mainline or liberal Protestant traditions have been decreasing, evangelical Christians have, have, have been increasing relative to those numbers. And so what we've seen is the Christians that remain committed to uh, their churches and their traditions, at least in the white Christian tradition, they tend to be more theologically and politically conservative, identifying with evangelical churches. And those who have, say, fallen away in the mainline tradition tend to be more progressive or liberal in theology and politics. And so that's the primary schism that we're seeing there. But I think the interesting thing about this article, and I'm sure you'll find a way to share it with folks, is the author of this book talks about the role that ecumenicalism played in shaping some of these Division. So ecumenicalism, of course, talking about cooperation across traditions. Uh, mainline Protestant traditions were really into this in the early days, especially in, the, in, in into the early 20th century. He argues that ecumenicalism among evangelicals kind of dipped, and there's not this cooperation among traditions within the evangelical tradition anymore. And that's also playing a role in making politics more conservative in these evangelical traditions. 
it has resulted in, in my own experience, um, in what feels like a spirit of competition mm-hmm. instead of a genuine spirit of cooperation. And I think that it's it's honest in that um, ecumenical uh, parachurch organizations mm. and movements grew up in quote unquote competition with youth ministries that weren't actually you know, introducing kids to Jesus or discipling mm. them in the faith. And so you got, mm. you know, you got Young Life, you got Campus Crusade, um, you got InterVarsity, I mean, on and on and on, these, these, these parachurch expressions of ministries that rose up because mainline Protestant churches were not introducing kids to Christ and then discipling them effectively in the yep. faith. And, yep. and then th- that competitive spirit, you know, also persists when, you know, when a young startup, right, you, you're going to plant mm-hmm. uh, an evangelical expression of the church in a community where there's, it's already dominated by mainline churches, you mm-hmm. feel like you're competing. And yep. so instead of um, cooperation and collaboration across all kinds of differences— we, um, you know, we end up with like a spirit of competition and that's really unhealthy. I mean, it just is. It's really unhealthy for the body of Christ. And it's not something that you see happen maybe even consciously. It's not something as if a pastor wakes up one day and he says, okay, how can I compete with this other congregation over there and take some of their, uh, you know, members and bring them over here? It really is a survival thing. I think for a lot of churches, you know, churches are just like any other organization. They need resources, they need people, they need support. And so I imagine your listeners can think about churches and their communities, the ones that are really thriving in terms of membership. You know, what do they have in common? I would be willing to wager. A lot of them have pretty strong family and children's programming. Some of them have more maybe contemporary or eye-catching worship or visual effects or things like that that draw people in. That's not across, I mean, that's not across the board, but generally speaking, you know, those churches tend to be doing pretty well in terms of numbers, not always in terms of like, uh, you know, it doesn't, doesn't make them the most theologically strong churches. I'm, they could be, but they're not necessarily the case. Uh, and, and so this competition is just fascinating. And I love this as a scholar of religion and politics, just thinking about the, the free market of American religion. And how there is this just spirit of competition under the First Amendment to where there's no state church and it's kind of a Wild West free-for-all. But, but that has led to this, this, I'll say, sorting uh, of American religion where you have folks in the white evangelical tradition basically getting comfortable and saying, well, we're gonna, we're gonna, we don't need to cooperate as much with folks over there because it is kind of a competition. And what that leads to is deepening divides in our politics. So I, um, I come out of uh, a mainline Protestant experience, both as a young person and as a young adult. But in between, I had this, you know, evangelical parachurch experience with Young Life, and that has deeply influenced me along the way. Um, and I would say my primary discipleship came through that experience, not through my experience inside uh, the expression of Methodism or Presbyterianism, which Mm. were the two that I was um, involved in as a child and then as a young adult. I would also say I have a lot of experience with this uh, this ecumenism conversation Mm. in both uh, mainline Protestantism, reflecting on all of the ways in which the PCUSA, of which I was a part, tried to figure out, like, you know, how how are we going to, like— pool our influence with Episcopalians yeah. and the UCC and the Disciples of Christ and others because yeah. we're individually losing influence. And so how do we regain that by coming together 
Um, and that that's a failed that's a failed effort for sure. Um, but the National Council of Churches would be one place that you could point. Well, then you could also point to the NAE, the National Association yep. of Evangelicals, and say, yeah, they they you know they spun up a competing organization um, as well. And so some of this. You know, folks that are just going to church, like, right, just living living the life of the ordinary average Christian, they don't even know this is going on at the denominational level across the country. But all of it's about power and influence. All of it is about who gets to walk into the room and say to a group of senators or a group of members of Congress, this is what Presbyterians think and believe. This is what Baptists think and believe. This is what Mm. Christians think and believe. And um, because they know that those are influential segments of the American population. And so it's not, this is not an an irrelevant conversation um, for the ordinary, uh, you know, just I go to church uh, kind of person. This is relevant because this is what's happening at the, at a level of the conversation in the country that most people are just not privy to. And yeah, that's exactly right. I would imagine thinking about your own churches uh, or your own church on Sunday, thinking about my church on Sunday, I would imagine the vast majority of folks couldn't care less about, right. uh, Absolutely. about denominational politics or anything, but it does have implications. So I go to a PCA church. Um, the biggest, I think, uh, division that we're seeing right now is within the Southern Baptist Convention, where you, and this is the largest evangelical denomination which in the country. Is, which is now mine, by the way. Yeah, I'm the Southern okay. Baptist so you, now. Yeah. You got the yeah. Southern Baptist Convention on the one hand, and then you have this, I don't know if it's a competing group or a splinter group, whatever we're going to call it, this conservative Baptist network kind of emerging from the SBC as a counter to what it sees maybe as missional drift or theological drift within the SBC on certain issues. And they're trying to become a prominent, a, a similarly prominent organization to get the ear of leaders in the country to get the ear of the media and say, look, SBC, you know, they're the they're the big dog, so to speak. But right now there's a lot of passion for this conservative Baptist network. And we're going to try to speak into those uh, issues from this perspective. And so it never ends. Right. There's always Mm -hmm, a mm -hmm. new movement coming up. And so, yeah, I think I mean, we could talk about this for for hours. But uh, (laughs) but yeah, this is this is just a fascinating part of American religion. (laughs) We're going to continue this conversation, but not not today. How's that sound? <laughs> Sounds good. I love it. That's uh, Daniel Bennett. You can find him at John Brown University. You can also find him on the Uneasy Citizenship blog. What are you thinking about these things? You can always text me during the show, 877-933-2484. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LaBurge, and this is Faith Radio. One uh, quick update here on a story that we talked about back in August. Salman Rushdie, um, you will remember, was attacked during a speech at the Chautauqua Institute. Um, And uh, I wanted to give you an update on that. We now know that he has um, lost sight in one eye after that attack. And he's also lost the use of one hand because the nerves in his arm related to that hand were severed. Um, We also know that he took... um, uh, he had injuries uh, on his torso, both of his arms, both of his legs, um, and several to his neck as well. It's it's really uh, nearly miraculous that um, that he survived. It, but it also, you know, brings to the fore of our conversation um, just how much concern we have, a prayer concern in an ongoing way for one another. So let's be lifting up the people that we've talked about in the news over the course of time. We get another hour up next. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. 
If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.